This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, the furious reaction of a senior public servant after a colleague with concerns switched off a key part of the robo-debt system. Also, the government pursues a ban on live sheep exports, but some farmers refuse to accept the trade will end. It takes a competitor out of the market that purchases their livestock, so I think it would absolutely decimate the West Australian sheep flock and have huge ramifications for the rural area and the economy throughout Western Australia. And more evidence that poor sleep increases the risks to your health, including heart disease. Despite the fact that sleep is ubiquitous across all species and it's a vital biological function, for some reason it has been a blind spot. But in reality, it's, it's a silent killer. It's, it's happening at night. First tonight, a public servant has told the robo-debt Royal Commission she was verbally abused by her boss when she revealed she'd switched off a part of the automated system that was sending incorrect debt notices to welfare recipients. Tennille Collins, the former director of the Human Services Department, says her boss screamed at her for an hour and smashed a phone against a desk in frustration. She told the Royal Commission there was a lot of pressure on senior bureaucrats in her department in late 2014 to get the robo-debt policy up and running and she believes shortcuts were taken. Most notably, she says legal advice to the department, which said the scheme was unlawful, was ignored in the rush. Rachel Mealy reports. The robo-debt policy promised to bring $1.7 billion back into the federal budget over five years by improving the debt recovery system for Australians who'd claimed welfare. Tennille Collins had worked for the Department of Human Services for a number of years, but says she'd never seen a new policy developed like this, and she says her immediate supervisor, who was leading the project, told her it was being rushed through. But my impression at the time was that he was quite frustrated that they were... uh, taking the idea forward without a full understanding of what the idea was. That was the general nature of his frustration. The Royal Commission is narrowing its focus on how the policy went from idea to implementation. In a few crucial months from late 2014 to early 2015, robo-debt came to life. Commissioner Catherine Holmes asked Tennille Collins why there was such haste in getting the NPP, or new policy proposal, ready. There was a strong push at this time in in the department more broadly to find efficiencies. Uh, That may have had something to do with it. I couldn't say for certain because I wasn't involved in the conversations. Um, I was surprised at the time, though, because we had only really... We were still iterating the process that we proposed to test on the 8th of December... And then we had a draft MPP on the 10th of December. It's highly unusual. Mm, And highly risky, I'd have thought, too. Yes. 
During those months, legal advice from the Department of Social Security stated that the policy as outlined in the proposal was illegal, that the method it was based on for calculating the so-called debts of welfare recipients wasn't allowed under the Act. Tennille Collins told the Royal Commission that it's clear to her now that people in her department chose to ignore that advice. I think it is pretty clear that DHS was trying to put forward a view that nothing was changing. In late 2016, when the robo-debt policy had been running formally for a number of months, media stories highlighting the policy's flaws were appearing more frequently. Tennille Collins says her department didn't act to address the core of the problem. I think for the most part, though, most of the public servants were just so overwhelmed by the volume of issues and media interest and um, that, I mean, it, it was like not being able to see the forest for the trees. We became very distracted with things that did not matter. Mm, the trouble is the trees were falling on lots of people. I know. When she discovered that one component of the robo-debt system could be disabled, Tennille Collins says she asked a person in IT to switch it off while it was reviewed. A few months later, she told her department's Deputy Secretary, Melissa Golightly, what she'd done. My recollection is that for about the next hour, Ms Golightly screamed at me irrationally is the only way I could describe it. I then had uh, a subsequent meeting with her the following day. In that meeting, she was relatively calm to start with. She did smash her phone in frustration uh, during that meeting. Uh, and in that meeting, she also told me that I was not getting a further opportunity because I was annoying. Melissa Golightly died in late 2021. The former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull will be called to give evidence to the Royal Commission when it resumes on Monday. Rachel Mealy reporting. The federal government's plan to end the export of live sheep could be undermined by strong pushback from exporters and agricultural groups. The Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, announced today that Labor's acting on its pre-election commitment to end the trade and is establishing an independent panel to advise on how and when it'll be done. But peak agriculture bodies say they won't even take part in the consultation process. Catherine Gregory has more. Almost five years ago, images of thousands of dead and decaying sheep on a live export ship hit the media. They're all suffering from severe heat stress. Channel 9, 60 Minutes had a video footage of it all. Ship records show that on the second day, 880 sheep died. The then coalition government vowed to crack down on the industry. Soon after, the then Labor opposition vowed to phase out the trade. Now in government, Labor is taking action. Today, we're announcing the next stage in implementing that election commitment. Agriculture Minister Senator Murray Watt says a panel of agriculture, government and animal welfare experts will lead a consultation process to determine how and when that ban will happen. The Albanese government understands that this is a big adjustment for many people here, particularly in Western Australia. We're not going to rush it. Uh, both the Prime Minister and I have said publicly that this phase-out will not be implemented in this term of Parliament. Australia predominantly exports live sheep to the Middle East and the Live Exporters Council estimates there'll be more than 2,500 job losses in Western Australia alone, as well as significant reputational damage if the ban goes ahead. 
But Senator Watt says the government will help the industry transition into other markets. And we know that the live exports constitute uh, less than 1% uh, of Western Australians' overall agriculture exports. And in particular, one of the things that we've asked the panel to look at uh, is what opportunities there might be to expand onshore processing of sheep meat. But Labor's plan to end the trade is under threat, given the huge backlash against the policy. Nationals leader and shadow agriculture minister David Littleproud says any future coalition government that the Nationals is a part of will reverse any ban on the trade. This is an industry that has reformed itself, that's faced up to its wrongs and is leading the world in animal welfare when many other parts of the world don't, don't even assess on animal welfare, they assess on mortality. And if we if we shut down this industry, we export the welfare standards of countries like Sudan and Ethiopia uh, that don't have our standards. He vows to stand behind the live exports and agricultural industry in fighting Labor's policy. Mark Harvey Sutton is the CEO of the Australian Livestock Exporters Council. We sent a letter uh, alongside 25 other uh, peak agricultural bodies and we made it very clear in that letter uh, that the manner in which we'll engage with that consultation is we'll be putting forward the, the, the reasoning why the policy is incorrect. Uh, we won't be contemplating a discussion about how to transition out of the trade uh, because quite simply uh, it can't be done. He concedes that the images of animal cruelty years ago is hard for the industry to move past, but it has made big changes. Exports aren't allowed to happen during the Northern Hemisphere summer. There's improved ventilation and the sheep have to be in decent condition with the shortest wool length possible, all to reduce the risk of heat stress. If this policy is carried through, the message it sends to every agricultural industry in Australia is that if you have a challenge with your social licence and you reform and you address it, uh, you can still be shut down for political purposes uh, and that alarms every single agricultural industry in Australia. But animal rights groups say the ban on exports is long overdue and isn't convinced the reforms have been protecting the sheep. Jed Goodfellow is from the Australian Alliance for Animals. The industry has attempted uh, to do research in terms of dehumidification technology and it has failed. Uh, so the only option uh, for ensuring that uh, animal welfare is protected is to transition out of the live sheep trade into more onshore domestic processing where the sheep can be processed to Australian standards by Australian workers where their welfare is actually protected. When the animals uh, get off the vessel into the Middle Eastern markets, um, they're not subject to animal welfare laws. That's Jed Goodfellow from the Australian Alliance for Animals. Catherine Gregory with that report. Well, the move to ban live sheep exports might be underway, but some producers who rely on the market are already refusing to engage with the phase-out process. But others say the sector can and will adapt. Bridget Fitzgerald reports. Most of the 500,000 sheep live exported from Australia last year came from WA. From industry point of view, there's no support for phase-out. It would absolutely decimate the West Australian sheep industry. Stephen Bolt is a sheep producer from Western Australia's central wheat belt, around 220 kilometres east of Perth. For farmers like him, who rely on selling their sheep into the $92 million live export trade, he says engaging in the phase-out process isn't an option. We're extremely concerned about you know the government approach here and uh, we'll be fighting it all the way to make sure that live export is retained for Western Australia. 
But if this is something that the federal government is determined to see happen, wouldn't it be more beneficial for the industry to try and work with government to ensure that there's not such a shock? Uh, look, I, I don't think there's any way that we could do it with without being at a, a major shock to our current industry. There, There is not the level of domestic supply chain or processing space available for us. Again, it takes a competitor out of the market that purchases our livestock. So I think it would absolutely decimate the West Australian sheep flock and have huge ramifications for the rural area and the economy throughout Western Australia. And Stephen Bolt is right. There isn't currently capacity to process sheep destined for the live export market in local abattoirs. But with a bit of time, money and preparation, there could be. It's not about today or tomorrow. It's about where the industry is going to be in 10, 15, 20 years' time. Craig Hegerton is a sheep farmer from Cojanup in the state's Great Southern region. He's also chair of the Western Australian Meat Marketing Cooperative, WAMCO, a farmer-owned co-op that operates two abattoirs, one in WA and one in New South Wales. The two things that are required uh, is space in the abattoir to be able to process those so that comes down to facilities, having enough cool rooms, chillers, available plant that can handle extra stock. And the second one is labour. Such an expansion would be costly. Whamco's looking at introducing a second shift at its WA abattoir in Katanning, which would cost around $40 million to double production at the facility. There's also a need for a huge investment in sourcing labour, likely from overseas, and organising housing. Craig Hegerton says government needs to be prepared to pitch in to help the sector adjust, but he's confident there's potential for the WA sheep industry to not only survive, but to thrive. Given that the, the expanding processing capacity, it certainly can survive. And with the added bonus that people might be able to make even more money out of their sheep. Uh, there was a boat recently sold out, sold out of Fremantle and I understand they were paying between 80 to $90 for store weather lambs, merino lambs. Another producer of ours who feed lots of few lambs and uh, had merino weather lambs, he actually didn't feed these lambs any grain, just on stubbles and then put them onto a bit of loosened pasture and made $170 for a similar type of animal where it was prepared to be finished. So a, a small, a relatively small investment in, in finishing off that stock could reap a better return for the producer if it was processed locally? Without doubt. But there's also a lot of frustration among some farmers over what they say is a lack of consultation. What we're seeing is it's it's based on nonsense and not not sound science. Marcus Saunas has a mixed cropping and livestock farm near WA's south coast. He says there's a risk to animal welfare if the phase-out happens too quickly. A dry season could mean too many sheep and not enough food to go round. If we don't have that ability to ship a large amount of livestock in a short period of time, it, it could lead to animal welfare issues on farm. Whatever the concern with the pace or the decision, the phase-out plan is underway, leaving producers little choice but to find a way forward. Bridget Fitzgerald. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Ahead, fears a new Russian assault could follow President Putin's concoction of stories of Ukrainian terrorism. Now, if he does that, then it effectively means that he doesn't have to treat Ukrainian service people as legitimate combatants. So, in effect, the laws of war just go out the window. (music) 
A murder trial that's gripped America has ended with a jury finding a once powerful South Carolina lawyer guilty of murdering his wife and son on their sprawling country estate. After deliberating for less than three hours, the jurors unanimously accepted the prosecution's case that Alec Murdoch killed them in an attempt to gain sympathy as he tried to cover up his embezzlement of clients' funds and drug addiction. This report from Gavin Cooch. Did you your wife inside? What do you think of the verdict, Alec? Why do you lie? Led out of the county court in handcuffs, Alec Murdoch showed little emotion after being found guilty of murdering his wife and son. Culminating a nearly six-week-long trial in South Carolina, the fourth-generation lawyer was convicted following less than three hours of jury deliberations. Wow, what a great day for the people of South Carolina. South Carolina's Attorney General Alan Wilson hailed the verdict in a case that attracted huge interest in the US and overseas, with revelations Murdoch embezzled millions of dollars from clients and was fueling an extreme addiction to opioids. Today's verdict proves that no one, no one, no matter who you are in society, is above the law. Murdoch admitted lying to police when he denied stealing from clients and lying to investigators about being at his home's dog kennels where the shootings took place in June 2021, but maintained his innocence on the murder charges. Prosecutors didn't find the weapons that were used, but a minute-long video on his son Paul's phone formed a crucial piece of evidence. Alec Murdoch's voice is heard on the video, recorded minutes before the killings. In his closing argument, defence attorney Jim Griffin accused investigators of fabricating evidence. He says they chose to focus on Murdoch because of his mounting drug and financial troubles. Why, why, why? Would Alec Murdoch, on June 7th, execute his son Paul and his wife Maggie, who he adored and loved? Ladies and gentlemen, I submit the verdict has to be not guilty. Because there's no reason for him to do it. No reason whatsoever. The verdict drew large crowds at the small town courthouse. Mimi Green and Jean DeMoss had travelled three and a half hours to be there. It was the right verdict. Same thing. I think two people were brutally murdered and there's no one else who could have done it. But it's also a bit of history. This, this is a case that nobody will ever forget for a very long time. Prosecutors told the jury Murdoch killed his wife and son in order to gain sympathy to buy time to cover his tracks as he awaited trial on other charges ranging from insurance fraud to tax evasion. Creighton Waters was the lead prosecutor in the trial. It doesn't matter what you think, how prominent you are. If you do wrong, if you break the law, if you murder, then justice will be done in South Carolina. And I think South Carolina has shown to the nation and the world how a process can work and work well. Thank you all. Murdoch's father, grandfather and great-grandfather were the area's elected prosecutors for more than 80 years. The family is also associated with several other deaths in recent years, including a fatal boat crash in which his son was implicated and the housekeeper who died in a fall at the family home. Liz Farrell is the co-host of the Murdoch Murders podcast. This is a small area, it's rural. Hampton, South Carolina is a very rural area and poor. 
And so you just have this rich and powerful family that has sort of been lording over it for generations. The family sat behind Alex throughout the six-week trial. So they even testified on his behalf, including his remaining son, Buster. So it's going to be interesting to see if the family comes to the courtroom tomorrow for the sentencing because Murdoch stick together and blood is thicker than water. And, you know, even though it seemed pretty obvious, obviously, to a lot of us, including my co-host and I, that he had done this, uh, I think the family still sort of held out hope because their family name is incredibly, incredibly important around here. The 54-year-old faces 30 years to life in prison without parole. Gavin Coote reporting. As G20 foreign ministers met in India to try and come up with a way of resolving the war in Ukraine, the Russian president, Vladimir Putin, went on TV and accused what he calls Ukrainian terrorists of staging an attack inside his territory. The claims have been dismissed in both Kyiv and Washington. But they're stoking fears that Russia may be seeking to manufacture justification for stepping up its war on Ukraine. Nick Grimm reports. Sitting alone in what appears to be a Kremlin office suite, Vladimir Putin told Russians Ukrainian saboteurs had infiltrated two villages inside the country. He said Russian soldiers are protecting people from neo-Nazis and terrorists. They infiltrated the border territory and opened fire on civilians. Ukraine denies the claim and warns that Moscow could use the allegations to justify stepping up its own attacks inside its territory. And in the US, Pentagon Press Secretary Brigadier General Pat Ryder told reporters there was nothing to corroborate the allegation. I don't have any information in regards to uh, whether or not the Ukrainians have conducted these type of operations. I'd refer you to them. I can say definitively uh, that the notion of the US providing intelligence or information to the Ukrainians to target Uh, locations inside Russia is nonsense. Certainly Matthew Sussex, a senior fellow at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at ANU, questions how much substance can be put into Vladimir Putin's claims. Unless the Russian government can provide some hard evidence, you'd have to conclude that there's very little incentive for Ukrainian forces regular or irregular, to go into a Russian town uh, and kill people, including civilians, which is something that they've studiously avoided. So why concoct a claim like this if that indeed is what Vladimir Putin is doing? Uh, Well, he's called a meeting of his Security Council and the speculation is that he may frame this as a terrorist attack. Now, if he does that, then it effectively means that he doesn't have to treat Ukrainian service people as legitimate combatants. So, in effect, the laws of war just go out the window. It comes as Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky used his nightly television address to condemn Russia's latest missile strike on a civilian target inside his country, killing at least two people and injuring around a dozen. Today's brutal Russian missile attack on Zaporizhia will attract a military and legal response. The occupier will inevitably feel our strength, the strength of justice in every sense of the word. And I want to thank all of our rescuers who have been clearing the rubble of the house which was destroyed by the missile. Efforts to pursue a resolution to the war in Ukraine, the subject occupying G20 foreign ministers as they met in India. The host nation attempting to mediate an outcome capable of satisfying the US and its NATO allies, as well as Russia and China. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken meeting on the sidelines with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov, for the first time since last year's invasion. 
State Department spokesman Ned Price later briefing journalists on the substance of the encounter. This was not uh, a bilateral meeting. This was not uh, a protracted discussion between the two. Uh, This was a rather brief encounter uh, that the secretary took advantage of to convey clearly and directly Uh, messages that are important to the United States and, uh, in many cases, to the rest of the world. Meaningful progress was limited, the summit ending without any agreement on a joint communique. The Russian foreign minister insisting his country has the backing of China, which Western nations fear could yet supply arms and other equipment to help sustain its military operations in Ukraine. Beijing's attempt to broker a peace plan, leaving analysts like Matthew Sussex Underwhelmed. Well, the Chinese have put forward a, a 12-point peace plan that's very long on aspirations, but uh, not extremely detailed when it comes to, to the actual nuts and bolts of what peace would look like in Ukraine. And I think while it's right that the Ukrainians have, have welcomed it and said, you know, we, we support all attempts to get to peace, um, it, it really is quite unclear uh, how much uh, territory the Ukrainians would have to give up in order to get to peace, especially given that the Russian perspective has been that, uh, well, all the territory that we've annexed uh, and declared annexed in September last year is part of Russia, and that is uh, the baseline for any negotiation. Matthew Sussex, a senior fellow at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the ANU. Nick Grimm with that report. Well, when was the last time you had a good night's sleep? It's well known that missing out on slumber can affect your physical and mental health. But a new study has pinpointed a particular risk, finding people with sleep problems can develop heart disease seven years earlier than those who are well rested. Isabel Masali has more. Julie Downey has been driving trucks across Australia for 23 years. And despite the challenges, it's a job she loves. It's one of those jobs where uh, when things go well, there's nothing better than being out on the road by yourself, not having, you know, a boss in the office or, or people micromanaging you, but, but just getting out there and enjoying the view of this gorgeous country that um, most people don't get to see. But it can also mean missing out on what many take for granted. Exercise, a healthy meal and a good night's sleep. If you're pushed to the wire, you would be getting a seven-hour break each day. In that seven-hour break, you would have perhaps to shower or to eat. Sleep in the industry is is quite challenging to get and... um, takes quite a bit of planning and uh, thankfully the longer you've been in the industry the more you've been able to modify what you need to make sure that you can get home safely at the end of the week. It's stories like Julie Downey's that have experts concerned. Researchers from the University of Sydney and Southern Denmark University have published a study examining the relationship between sleep behaviour and the development of heart disease. And that includes people with general poor sleep. They studied data from the UK Biobank, where the health of half a million people is being assessed in detail. Peter Sistuli is a professor of sleep medicine at the University of Sydney. And what we found was that um, the people with the worst sleep behaviours had an average of about two years of less um, healthy lifespan because they developed cardiovascular problems. In addition to that, we were interested in whether 
clinical sleep problems like sleep-related breathing disorders, sleep apnea, whether that has an influence. And what we found there was that people who did have sleep apnea had a staggering seven years of reduced healthy lifespan. Professor Sistuli says they also found women were slightly more affected than men, and this study adds weight to growing evidence showing the importance of sleep. He wants governments, the community and experts to come together and take the issue seriously. You know, despite the fact that sleep is ubiquitous across all species um, and it's a vital biological function, for some reason it has been a blind spot. And so people are so focused on other uh, health issues that are prominent during the day. But in reality, you know, it's it's a silent killer. It's It's happening at night and the person who's got the problem often doesn't appreciate the extent of it. Ruth McPhail is a professor of human resource management at Griffith University and researches workplace wellbeing. She says it's clear poor sleep can impact the workplace in a range of ways, from dealing with grumpy co-workers to major workplace accidents, and believes while shift work can be difficult to manage, there is a simple solution for other roles, recognising that people function better at different times and offering flexibility. So you may be somebody who's more comfortable working at night or somebody who's much fresher in the morning, uh, but we all tend to sort of sit to these regular hours or in the case of shift works, those regular shifts, whereas they may not actually be the best for you. And there's actually quite a lot of research now around matching people's natural sleep rhythms and the best times for them to work to actually create peak performance. And I think that's something that we were able to achieve more in in what I would call the the COVID area or era where we had a period of time where people were working from home. They had the more flexibility to be able to kind of work when it best suited them. If you are struggling to get enough sleep, Professor Sistuli urges you to speak to a GP instead of waiting years to get help. Isabel Masali reporting. And that's PM for this week. PM's producer is David Cody. Technical production by Scott Johnston and Kem White. I'm Samantha Donovan. I'll be back with PM on Monday evening. Melissa Clark will bring you This Week on the radio tomorrow morning and you can find that podcast on the ABC Listen app. That's also where you can make PM one of your favourite programs. Thanks for your company this week. I hope you have a great weekend. Good night. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Super was set up to be your ticket to a comfortable retirement, but over the years, the richest Australians have done a lot better out of it than everyone else. Today, ABC 730's chief political correspondent, Laura Tingle, on the government's surprise move to target the wealthy with a tax hike. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.